again, the lack of clarity or commitment to a specific set of, of outcomes, skills and sensibilities that align with the, the way the world is and the capacities yeah. a human needs, not just to survive, thrive, that, that too is a piece of this equation, right? Like the, the current system has not been particularly good at intentionality. Is that, is that fair to say? Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. Greetings, everybody, and greetings, Raya. Thank you for joining me today. We are thrilled to have you on the show, honored, actually, to have you on the show. So for the audience, a couple, a couple bits of background on Raya. She is the founder and chief executive officer of something called the School of Humanity. And I just so love that name. And for those of you that listen to Insert Human, as you know, my thing is humanity. And how do we insert more humanity into every aspect of our society? And Raya and her team are trying to figure that out through the lens of this thing we call school. She is also a founder of something called Awe Academy, which was a award-winning organization, I think out of Dubai. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Focused, uh, very focused, focused on the sort of future and on what, what they refer to as wisdom-based education. She's the co-founder of a, a number of different initiatives that are all kind of sort of education-based, the Dubai Science Festival, mm -hmm. Intelligent Optimism, and something called Café Scientifique Dubai. Um, she's a speaker at many conferences. I think one of my most, uh, talk about Awe Academy, awe-inspiring awe moments was listening to her give a talk, I think at the age of 16, is that right? Yes, that TEDx talk. Um, the TEDx oh, no, now everyone's going to Google it's it like, and search for it. <laughs> it's both impressive and I, I know this is like a pejorative, but like kind of cute. Yeah. It's just, anyway, <laughs> her 16-year-old self was pretty damn impressive as much as her current self is impressive. And then uh, as, as if you need further proof, she was also listed on the BBC as one of the top 100 most influential and inspiring women in the world. So greetings, greetings, and, and thank you for being on the show. And, and then the other thing I'll say before we get into the sort of Q&A part is um, full disclosure for the listeners, you know, serendipity, as we all know, plays profound roles in our life. And serendipitously about, I don't know, was it six weeks ago, or it's not that long yeah. ago, I, I saw a post by Raya on LinkedIn, and I saw this thing called the School of Humanity, and, and I, I say, I'm, I, must, I must connect with this person. <laughs> Um, and so we, we, we set up a call and out of that call, um, just so, so impressed with what she and the team are trying to do. Fast forward, I, I've joined forces. We are collaborating. Uh, I've actually taken a role as chief growth officer, which means trying to grow every aspect of the thing. Um, and I'm thrilled to be part of the journey, truly thrilled, um, and so, um, so yeah, so anyway, thank you again for being on the show. And, and, you know, I want to start with a very simple question, like not a big question. You know, there's a lot of conversation going on around the world about education, 
the need for a reinvention. It's been referred to as broken. Why is that? Like, what, what's not right with education? Or, or maybe the more positive view of that is, how, how do we make it more effective? Like, what's your view? Great question, and I think a great place to start the conversation. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me uh, today, Chris. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be collaborating. I can't say it enough. I'm so honored and humbled that you are joining our team. So yeah, coming to the this whole need for reinventing education, the way I usually like to frame the problem is that there are huge issues with what we teach, how we teach it, why we teach, and where we teach. So where learning happens, how it happens, and why it happens. And I think that we've disproportionately focused uh, more on the how rather than the what. So let's start with what we teach. I think a lot of what we focus on in terms of the curriculum, the content, the kinds of areas of subjects that we focus on are pretty much outdated and relevant to today's world. And there's so much that young minds need in order to thrive in this future of work, in order to contribute to the future of humanity that we don't cover in traditional high school core curriculum. So that's part of the problem. And then there's a whole bunch of issues around how we're teaching. You know, We're still adopting this industrial era cookie cutter standardized system. Um, and you know, soon we'll talk about what the opposite of that would look like. Um, a lot of the system is designed around us telling learners what to learn, telling them when to learn it, and then also telling them how they will be assessed on that learning without giving any flexibility or personalization or meaning um, to all of it. And um, part of the challenge is also what is incentivizing learning today. So most of teaching and learning in schools and really to some extent universities is incentivized by the desire to pass a test. It's, you know, I need to learn this to take this board exam, to take the AP, to take the A-levels, and then get into university. There really isn't learning that is guided by personal development or curiosity or a desire to better the world. So it's also it's broken. And finally, I'll say it's the where we learning happens. Luckily, this is changing. We're seeing this digitization rise of online schools, but we're still constraining a lot of learning within the bounds of what this quote-unquote school is. Right. So we say that learning that happens in the classroom is much more important. It takes up more time. It, it, it's more of the focus area compared to learning that you do on your own with courses or whatnot. So, yeah, that's that's how I would frame the layers of issues. In the so I, I have to ask sort of a, a macro macro question. Yeah. Quote a David Byrne talking head song. How did we get here? <laughs> like, you know, in, in, in other words, and as you know, I'm writing a book called Technology is Dead, which I'm currently in this exploration of this idea that the, the, the world is, is but a collection of systems, society is a collection of systems. How is it possible that our education system, which arguably yeah. is a pillar system, ended up so out of whack or out of sync with where the, where the learners are, where the parents are, where the, where the needs are, where the government? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know that there's a simple answer to that question. I just love to like explore that with it. Like, how do you, what, you know, what do you think? Yeah. I love that question actually, because it's exactly the question we ask young minds at the School of Humanity. So part of the learning is learning by solving global challenges. And we've adopted the solutionary framework from the Institute of Humane Education, which often involves saying, okay, this is a problem, but what are the root causes of the problem? Like what are the systemic issues contributing to the problem? And then what are the causes of those systemic issues? So just right. really narrowing to the root causes. And here, I think there's a couple of really core bottlenecks, let's call it, that hinder systemic change in the education space. One is really just narratives. 
we all grew up with a certain narrative of what education should be and how it should be. And so much of it is really a lack of our inability to really exercise and push our imagination. Like I usually ask, you know, when I speak to people about this, I ask them, can you imagine a school system without exams, without subjects, right. without year groups? Most people really struggle to imagine an alternative to that kind of a system. And that's part of the problem. It's a mindset issue or anything. Regulations is another huge bottleneck. I can tell you that's one of the biggest challenges we constantly have to overcome at School of Humanity. And I know that's the case for other alternative schools. Education continues to be such a heavily regulated system. And a lot of the regulations are outdated, but also very, very slow to change. So in many countries, it's illegal to launch the kind of model that we're launching, which is tragic. And I think really, frankly speaking, outrageous and unethical. And then you have parents. Hey, can, I, can I interject one thing, which yeah. I think I, I mentioned to you somewhere <laughs> along the way, but when I was working yeah. on my, my Finnis uh, program, which is this idea of replacing career services with a four-year developmental program, um, I began looking at accreditation within the higher education space in America, and I came to realize that the body, the accrediting body in America of colleges and universities is run by colleges and universities. <laughs> I, I believe that's, that's called a huge moneymaker as well. I believe that's called the fox in the hen house. I think that's, that's <laughs> anyway. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. Aaron. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, but, but luckily, I think that is true of the national and state level accreditation bodies that exist. Luckily, what we've seen actually, the private international accreditation bodies have been quite innovative, and many of them are actually agnostic of model and curriculum, which means. They say, okay, look, we'll come in and quality assure everything, but we're not going to mandate that you teach a specific type of curriculum or a specific pedagogy or model. So it makes it easier to really push the So how do they gauge? How do they gauge uh, credibility, viability? If, if not, yeah. on what's, what are they looking at? Yeah, so there are a couple of things, and they usually structure it into different categories. So there's a whole category of standards that they look for around operations. So do you have the, you know, do you have policies? Do you have operating procedures? Is there like, you know, are there systems in place that make sense? And is it mm -hmm. consistent? Is it scalable? Is it high quality? Is everything functioning well? Um, they also look at the pedagogical frameworks in general. So are you aligning with best practices in education? Are there clear objectives of learning and outcomes outlined? And then how are those objectives and outcomes being measured? Um, are you, you know, adopting best practices around the science of learning and neuroeducation? So it's quite, again, all of these things are necessary. I, I believe that we should all quality assure ourselves and other systems of education against these standards, but it's agnostic of what curriculum and what model you, you adopt. There's a whole set of standards as well around the capacity of the people you're hiring. So the leadership team, the facilitators, educators, are they being trained? Are, is there professional development? Are they qualified to be teaching? And all of these things make rational sense so at least right. you know the, the bodies that we've looked at that are international accreditors that's the direction they're moving to okay. but you're absolutely right with government accreditations with local uh, licensing even here in the united arab emirates it still is very much tied to specific types of curriculum and specific types of pedagogy okay okay so going back to why why we are where we are you mentioned parents and where, where are parents in this equation I don't remember who it was who said this to me, Chris. Maybe it was you, but you can't underestimate the role of nostalgia when parents right. you know, pick an education system for their children. And many parents still think, you know, they'd rather stick within their comfort zone and go with what worked best for them. And that makes sense. I mean, 
obviously as a parent, you want to take as little risks as possible in making sure you're paving way of success for your child. So most parents will still opt into the traditional system, which will have the traditional report card, which will make sure their kids go to university, right? That's usually the path most parents want for their kids. What I think most parents don't realize is that in itself is a very risky path now. It's a huge risk to stick to that industrial era path in a world of accelerating change where degrees are becoming increasingly outdated, where there's a widening skills gap, um, where you know data is showing that undergraduates are just not prepared for the workforce. So I think that's the mindset shift that parents too need to make as they often are the key decision makers for the type of education yeah. that their children um, choose. By the way, back to uh, when I was working on Finnish 2000, no, I guess it was before that, 2008, the financial collapse. And there was a mm. lot of conversation at the time about the cost of college education. You know, it, was, it clicked up over $250,000 for a four-year degree yeah. in, in America. And I started pondering, why aren't more parents taking to the streets? Like, why isn't there more overt activism about how mm. the system is failing? Because these kids were graduating with a trillion dollars in student debt no jobs on the horizon and not ready yeah. for the real world in any way, shape or form. Like why aren't parents revolting to, I'm not sure that's the right word, but yeah. ultimately what I arrived at, which is kind of the nostalgia point, is it's brutally yeah. hard to go up against the system that created you. <laughs> Psychologically, sure. if I trash the system that created me, I def de facto and and in, in, impinging, not impinging, but implying, a, I'm, I'm questioning the integrity of actually me. <laughs> you know? Like if I go up against the four-year college system, I'm the, I'm a product of that system. Yeah. And so I think there's a subconscious hesitance to really poke at it by a lot of people because you're poking at yourself. Now that's my, I have Absolutely. no data to substantiate that. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I actually kept asking myself that same question in university. So a lot of, you know, I was actually studying neuroscience to the audience. I had no plans to become an educator or come into the education space. But a lot of my uh, work today is informed by my frustrations and existential angst as a learner going through the American college system and paying so much money and seeing my family pay so much money for such a boring uninspiring, outdated, irrelevant system. And this is not specific to the university I went to, I think is yeah, quite you know, widespread yeah, in the, in the, the system. And I kept asking myself the same thing. It's like, you know, as learners, it's just like recap the college experience. We're all memorizing, you know, a ton of unnecessary information just to take an exam at the end and then forgetting it all and then repeating the cycle of insanity semester after semester. And many of Many uh, university students are actually completely overworked. The hours of time they spend in lectures and in our cases as science majors, labs and studying for things, it's, it's pretty insane. It's like a really high commitment uh, experience. And on top of that, your 20s are a time where you're trying to figure things out, right? You're trying to find yourself, childhood traumas are coming out and you really need to find paths towards self-actualization and meaning and purpose in life. And university system does none of that to support you on, on that path. If anything, I had peers who would go to the college kind of counselors for support because they were having issues with anxiety or mental well-being and they'd get medication prescribed to them after the first session. 
So in the context of all of this declining student well-being, you know, lack of focus on the skills that actually mattered, really uninspiring, boring pedagogy, and insane, insane cost of it all. Like I was just so angry and I kept asking myself and my peers, like, why aren't we protesting? Why aren't we all pissed off? You know, like imagine you, you went for a massage and they broke your bones or imagine you bought a phone and it came in completely broken. Like that's what our education system is. And I think more people need to recognize that and yeah. take some action. Yeah. One of the, one of the other pieces which you and I've talked a lot about and I've written a lot about is, um, the alarming lack of intentionality in much of our education system, mm. other than the intention is to teach and teach, teach classes and courses that the student passes to get enough credits to get a degree. I don't yeah. view that as learning intention. I view that as structural intention. Again, the lack of clarity or commitment to a specific set of, of outcomes, skills and sensibilities that align with the, the way the world is and the capacities yeah. a human needs, not just to survive, thrive, that, that too is a piece of this equation, right? Like the, the current system has not been particularly good at intentionality. Is that, is that fair to say? I, I, I agree. I think especially it's a more of a misalignment issue. If you go into most private or public schools, they'll have some kind of a mission statement that sounds something like, we want to create the leaders of tomorrow, right? We want to create well-rounded. Everyone claims they have this grand intention. It's like super, it intent actually... a super intention. The mission is like <laughs> yeah. this macro intention, right? Okay. Yeah. But then when you actually come into analyze what they do, the, the curriculum, the pedagogy, the day-to-day -day classroom experience, it really, the true intention is what you just described, preparing learners to pass tests and then go to college. That's actually what they're doing, but people are now trying to brand it a little differently. Um, I also think there is a lack of really meaningful intentions or intentions that make sense at an existential level for our species. So, you know, we always like to say the purpose of education really should be to enable us to progress as individuals, as humanities, find paths towards meaning and self-actualization, to solve global challenges and you know, push, push our species forward. And if you truly design for that intention, the model, the system of education would look very different compared to what we actually have as the mainstream today. Right, right. This sort of, I think, relates to part of, I, I think the declaration of what the School of Humanity is all about is to better serve our species. I think that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah. In, the, in the design of the school, how, how have you thought about both intentionality of those learning outcomes and also through this lens of whole person, you know, better serving our species? How's that manifesting, manifesting in the, call it the product itself? Yeah, there's a couple of layers to it. So the exercise that we kind of took and what I encourage others to take is, you know, don't carry the assumptions of the old system with you. If you erased it all and had to start from scratch, if you had to start designing an education system from first principles with no assumptions of the traditional system, what would it look like? And that's kind of the exercise we took. We thought, okay, what for, let's start with the what, like what should we guide young minds to learn? So we actually mapped out over 600 skills, mindsets and values that are informed by a couple of things. They're informed by the needs of the evolving workforce, you know, the transferable skills that are most in demand in, in this digital era. They're also informed by human progress. So the kinds of values and mental models and thinking tools that we believe or know that 
will push humanity forward, that we need more of. They're also informed by what we just feel like would enable any human being to live a meaningful and good life. So there's a lot of emphasis on emotional intelligence, morality, and ethics. So we've mapped out these outcomes ethics. and skills that we want. What are ethics? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that What does it mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, I could go deeper there, actually. No, 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 so no, we fleshed it out. <laughs> but moral reasoning skills, right? We don't we don't teach that, which is just there's a whole plethora of things we don't teach that we should, that we should guide learners towards. Um, there's a lot of emphasis to answer your question also on human flourishing. So we have an awesome team member who is actually Katana, she's the head of flourishing and inclusion. And she is in charge of actually designing a lot of the curriculum around things like how to cope with stress and anxiety, how to be more mindful and present. How do you find your purpose in life using frameworks like Ikigai? And this is something that cuts through the entire four-year high school experience. It's something that we put equal weight we give equal value to as a traditional school would to learning math or learning language skills. And it's part of, I think, what we're also trying to do in terms of creating better human beings through uh, this high school model. I mean, is it fair to call it whole, this, this may be the wrong term, but whole person learning, like that you're looking at every facet of the human, you know, that how, how do you prepare yeah. somebody in, the, in a multidimensional way Again, not just to go to college and get a job, but to actually live. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to live a, a, a yeah. fulfilled, meaningful, you know, contented, happy life or something. Like, is whole person exactly. like a right way to think about it? If I'm a parent listening to you, is that is that how I it, one way to yeah? You know? Absolutely. Look, there's so many ways to describe and frame. And, you know, part of the fun is actually I love seeing other people explain what we do in their own language. Right. And yes, I, a piece of that, Chris, is also how you what you measure. One of the challenges with traditional schools is this report card really focuses on re one narrow dimension of what this young mind is capable of. Right. We're really reduced. It's such a reductionist approach as well. And what schools like ours have started to do is adopt something called a mastery transcript, where you, where you focus, you know, instead of reducing learners to traditional grades and subjects, you focus on measuring transferable skills that um, kind of cut through different disciplines. And hmm. these skills are then tagged to a portfolio of projects as evidence of these skills. And the mastery transcript is far more equitable, it's far more holistic and well-rounded well measurement of a young mind's potential compared to a traditional report card. So yeah, just to kind of circle back, essentially when we talk about human flourishing and education for human flourishing, it doesn't make sense to do that, but then tell learners that the primary metric of success, these report cards doesn't right. capture any of that, right? Because yeah. that's what most schools do. They start doing mindfulness sessions or well-being extracurriculars, but what really concerns most of the time and what's being measured this report card doesn't capture any of those things. So we're still yeah. kind of sending these mixed signals, mixed signals to our yeah, youth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a little bit of hope in the U.S. and that a lot of colleges and universities are pulling back on SAT scores as a requirement for admissions. Like, I, yeah, I, I think that's... that I hope, hope that that signals, call it a more expansive form of assessment versus, you know, what's your score to determine whether you go forward or. Yeah. You know, uh, that happened as a byproduct of COVID, right? <laughs> they had no choice because all these exams and tests were getting canceled for the first time in history in multiple years in a row now. So they kind of had to, and I hope it stays that way. 
Yeah, it's the one good thing that's come out of COVID. Adversity sometimes breeds good things, right? Um, <laughs> so, so I'm now going to pretend to be the um, skeptical parent, nice. and I'm going to say, well, you know, I, I, the purpose of high school, part of it is you've got to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, and English, and history, and social studies, and and algebra. So. So this, this, how do you, do you ignore all those things? Like, how do you? Not at all. Okay, how, but how does that happen? Yeah, it's a very common misconception actually with alternative and progressive schools. And by the way, we're not the first completely crazy school <laughs> to decide right. to do something absolutely different. Happy to speak to examples, proven examples from around the world that are moving away from the traditional system, but we do. So the curriculum at the School of Humanities is completely interdisciplinary. Uh, but we do cover a lot of the core foundational mathematical reasoning skills, language skills, scientific thinking skills. Uh, the, the key difference is we do this a, in a personalized way, but also in a really interdisciplinary way. So I'll give you an example. Uh, for example, as a learner, imagine you embarked on one of our learning pathways around designing space settlements. So you would still you know, improve on your mathematical skills, but you would do it in the context of, let's say, a project around rocket launches. Uh, you might improve on your writing skills when you write a business plan um, for the actual project. Um, you might improve your scientific thinking skills by deep diving into astronomy and astrobiology and learning some key physics by, through the lens of that pathway. So you still cover all of those key foundations and we're actively rigorously measuring all of that, but it's done in a much more engaging, personalized, mm -hmm. flexible way. Another note I'll add with math and mathematical skills in general, we are partnering with an organization called Amy that has a really cool AI math tutor essentially that we're adopting, which allows learners to hone in on their math skills while the AI tutor actually gets to understand where the root cause of why they're struggling with a certain concept or a certain skill and can create adaptive learning journeys for them. So end up with a personalized math curriculum, you know, instead of learning in a classroom with right. 30 students doing the same thing where you need to focus on something else. So it's absolutely areas, these are areas that we do take into consideration. We do want to make sure the core literacies are covered. Um, it's just that we also place equal importance on a whole bunch of other things that schools don't today. In a way, uh, it's, it's replacing the task of memorization with the opportunity for realization. That so much of school, like yeah. my high school experience was memorization. You, you memorize the formulas, you memorize mm -hmm. the dates, right? And that the, the learning path approach that is contextually about today's world and the future world enables realization, and which which aligns with one of my one of my realizations about learning. One of my expressions is: if you don't feel it, you don't actually learn it. Mm. The way something really embeds in one's brain and heart is through through feeling, not through not through necessarily pure thinking, and so. Again, replacing memorization, the task of memorization in high school with realization, which has a much greater chance of sticking. And much That's a beautiful way to frame it. And a much yeah. greater chance of connecting dots. Like if you realize things, then your capacity to understand how history relates to math, which relates to science, which will, you know, is I would imagine is just far more, far more significant versus this sort of discrete modules that are, you know, you have to memorize. Um, so, Absolutely. So, I'm now back to being a 
I'm less skeptical. <laughs> and I'm now like an interested parent. What is the school? Like, where is it? Is it brick? <laughs> is it, yeah. what's it made out of? Yeah, so we're actually starting as an online school first, but we are doing hybrid programs, which I'll speak to in a second. Um, but yeah, we're a fully online school. Uh, we are leveraging some really cool tech, some that Chris, you've gotten a glimpse of, of creating really social virtual worlds, adaptive learning pathways. So essentially learners from anywhere in the world can sign up. And some parents are more excited about this than others. I've, you know, I've spoken to families who are excited to be able to take advantage of something like this and travel the world as a family, you know, so it's really ideal for homeschoolers, digital kids of digital nomads, online schoolers. But our vision ultimately is to have more of a hybrid approach. We do believe that hybrid learning is the future. So like a blended combination of in-person experiences and online experiences. I don't believe kids need to be in a school building as long as they are these days, you know, between 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. in some cases, five days a week for a whole chunk of their lives. I think we can be more flexible than that. But essentially what we're doing is partnering with venue partners, co-learning spaces all around the world that would serve as the equivalent of what a co-working space would be. So a venue, a space with adult supervision where young minds could go to socialize and interact with other young minds and where they could potentially you know, do their online learning from as well. And that's ultimately the vision is to have these co-learning spaces or learning hubs all around the world and be able to facilitate a really hybrid global learning experience uh, for all of our learners. So it's a global, if you're in, in Singapore, if you're in Nigeria, it doesn't matter where you are, it, it open, yeah. open to all. Is that right? Exactly. So we're just starting a summer, summer school cohort uh, in about a week, actually. And we have learners from up to 12 countries joining us. So wow. we're from, yeah, Chile, Canada, UAE, Philippines, Nigeria. So, and we love that. I think that's, that's how it should be. We do organize them by time zones. So it's not insane um, times uh, for the live sessions, at least. Uh, but yeah, it's part of what makes it such a special experience is young minds from all around the world getting together and learning by solving global challenges. I think that's a pretty awesome way to learn. So there's a summer school program. I actually know this. There's a summer school program. And then in the fall, launching a yeah. part-time program, which is sort of an, I call it after school. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah. So the part-time program, again, there's different time zones and slots, but usually people use it to supplement their existing um, education experience. And essentially our roadmap is, you know, we're starting with summer and part-time programs over the course of the next year as we finish up the accreditation process. And then we're launching um, a full-time high school cohort next year. So essentially, whether you want to completely have a full alternative to high school or whether you just want to supplement your existing high school experience, we have kind of offerings for both. Sort of taking a step back, what kind of student is the, is the, is the best student for the School of Humanity? Mm -hmm. Like as you, as you guys think about, I hate to use the word targeting, what's the profile? And, and, and what are you seeing? I know you have a number of students coming into the summer school. What do you see? Yeah. Are, there, are there commonalities to that profile? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you what we look for in the application process. And we do have a pretty rigorous screening process. The main thing we're looking for is if they're excited to learn and willing to participate. Um, you know, I, I, it doesn't matter if, let's say, their language skills are not speed or they're getting bad grades in their traditional school. Because the model is so interactive and requires participation and accountability from the learner, it's really difficult to force your kid to do it. Right? Like models like this that are inquiry-based, project-based, it's just very difficult to force 
a young mind through a process. So occasionally we get parents who really want their kids to participate, but they're not excited about it. So I would say that's the first thing is, are you a self-motivated, enthusiastic learner? And mind you, more often than not, these learners aren't motivated in a traditional school setting, but they're motivated to learn outside of the rigid structures of the school. So it doesn't necessarily mean- So if I'm a mean, parent and my kid, yeah. and I had, I had one, of my, one of my darling children hated school. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many arguments we had he and his mother and I had about him literally hating school. Is this for <laughs> school haters? Like, is, is it? Is, yeah, that's one of the things we do. And it's funny because I we didn't explicitly state it as such, but a number of learners in interviews <laughs> who said to me, I hate school. We're not learning things that are relevant. I really want to learn things that are useful. So, you know, a lot of young minds who hate school actually do want to learn. They just want to learn things that are relevant to them and that they're excited about and interested about. So I would say absolutely, if you, if you have um, a child that hates school, like consider, you know, at least trialing one of our programs. And that's part of why we do offer a summer school. It's a great six week, low commit, relatively low commitment opportunity for someone to try it out before committing to a longer term part-time or full-time uh, mm -hmm. program. How about on the parent front? Are there certain kinds of parents that you're seeing show interest? This, this works for either because their child hates school mm. or their circumstance you know, yeah. is bubbling up something? Yeah, certainly what you just said, you know, they're seeing their children be disengaged. Sometimes it's the opposite in that they have uh, children who are gifted and they're just bored with the traditional school or they're not challenged enough and they need personalized attention and they need one-on-one -on -one guidance to take, to help, you know, give them something that's more intellectually stimulating. So sometimes it's that, that's the problem that the parent's trying to solve. Um, we also do have, you know, I think for our full-time model, the prospective families for it are often more forward-thinking. They're often families who are either already online schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, or exploring that, that, that uh, whole realm. And sometimes there are parents and families that need flexibility that are now, you know, with the rise of digital nomads and remote work, want that flexibility for their children because they're now getting that flexibility with their own jobs. Yeah. So it's, it's, those are generally the, the trends we see with the kinds of families and parents that sign up. Okay. One, one of the things you and I have talked about, which I think we should talk about today, is coming out of COVID, there's some percentage of the world that says it validated the, the, the capacity, the potential of online learning. And there's another cohort that's saying not the opposite, but saying, okay, from a reach access efficiency perspective, yeah. it did that. But from a socialization perspective, it fell way short. How does the School of Humanity uh, seek to address that, that latter piece? Yeah, I think there's a number of caveats we have to keep in mind with what we all just experienced with COVID. First thing being, most students experienced online learning and distance learning for the first time in the context of the pandemic. So online learning is very different when you can you know, do online learning until 2, 3 p.m. and then go play with your friends all day, right? So the added social mm. isolation, I think, was a huge challenge. That's an excellent point. Second, excellent point. Yeah. Yeah. And the second, second point being, most schools had no clue what they were doing, right? So 
they simply digitize. And I don't blame schools and educators. And by the way, I think that our teachers demonstrated incredible agility over this period. But you know, by no fault of their own, they were forced to transition towards a whole new model within the span of weeks in some cases. So what most schools were forced to do is just digitize the same curriculum, the same pedagogy, the same timetable and move it online. In some cases, I was seeing schools just do Zoom lectures back to back from again, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And that's the worst way to do online learning. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, in our case, the way we've kind of contrasted that is our online experiences, we actually don't have more than three hours of live sessions. So it's a combination of synchronous and asynchronous. There's a lot of things that the learners can do in their own time. So giving that flexibility. And we don't believe in lectures, even online. So all of our live sessions are workshops, collaborative-based, activity-based, discussion-based, lots of social learning happening, even in an online setting. Um, you know, I mentioned that we, we do want to establish co-learning spaces because we believe that in-person experiences are really powerful and important. Um, but on top of that, it's a completely different pedagogy. So it's personalized learning plans, you know, learning by solving global challenges, which makes it exciting even for an online model. It just makes it so much more engaging than what you have with the traditional system. The last caveat I'll add with COVID, it also depends on the age and preference of the learner. I totally don't recommend online learning for really, really young, like below the age of eight years old. I just don't think that's the right age for online learning. And different learners have different preferences. I, I, I had students who thrived in an online setting. Like they were very quiet, but they found it much easier to socialize in an I've online heard, setting. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and especially a lot of gifted young minds like the more the control they've had, the flexibility they had to organize their time the way that worked best for them. Mm -hmm. And some learners absolutely hated it. And I think it's important to recognize that and have optionality for different types of learners. That's great. That's great. Yeah. What, um, on the part-time program, I believe you're working with school schools in some regard. So is, is that how it works? Or can my child sign up for part-time whether his school is involved mm. or her school is involved or not? Like how does that, how's the part-time piece work? Absolutely. So yeah, you can sign up just as a parent independently or as a learner, you know, you can absolutely sign up independently. Uh, what has been interesting for us is we've had government entities and schools reach out saying, hey, we love what you're doing. How can we offer this at our schools? And that's honestly been amazing. And we're very excited about that because we don't necessarily want to be competition to right. existing schools. We would love to collaborate with them and help scale this up to as many learners as possible. And especially with schools, the challenge they're facing is they know they need to change the way they do things. They know they need to change structure in the curriculum, but they often don't have the time, the funding, the bandwidth, the skill set to do so. So partnering with us works well for them. But yeah, so there's, there's two kind of paths there. One is if you're representing a school and would like to bring this on to a number of students from the school, we usually do work with schools and that actually reduces the cost for participation. And then parents and learners can independently sign up um, as well. Okay, you mentioned cost. Yes. <laughs> how, how expensive is it? So with our full-time model, we're looking at starting at around $800 a month in terms of the pricing. And that's usually a minimum of 10 months a year for a school year. With part-time, it starts around $350 a month. I will add, though, we always offer a limited amount, but we always offer uh, scholarships, need-based scholarships to learners who can't afford it. So I do encourage uh, families to not let costs stand in the way. We've done partial discounts. We've done 
full scholarships, we do our best to make sure it's as, as equitable and as accessible. And especially as you know, we have a global audience, we often do have to take into account, for example, inflation, right? Like different yeah. currency powers and purchasing powers. So we do take that into account and do sometimes personalize the pricing for families from specific markets uh, where the dollar value might not be as accessible for them. That's great. So last question, maybe. Um, <laughs> what, what does this look like five years from now? You know, like what's the vision? What's your aspiration? Yeah. What would, what would, what would just, uh, yeah. What, what do you, what do you, what do you see? I think aside from hopefully having scaled our model up to hundreds of thousands of learners, what we hope to start doing more of and the vision in that five-year period is to really start to do systemic change by partnering with governments, partnering with national skills agendas and redesigning entire public systems of education. And that's ultimately the hope and really how you scale something like this away from the mainstream model towards this new alternative education model. Yeah. And um, that's really the vision. I, of course, we also hope at that point that we have a network of co-learning spaces all around the world, that we have this more of a hybrid model. And a part of that, by the way, is having an open enrollment system, meaning that you can you know, participate in some sessions in Brazil and then maybe your family decides to go live in Dubai for a few months and you can continue learning at the co-learning spaces here in Dubai. So allowing for that global continuity that I think will be very commonplace with the rise of remote work. And um, yeah, that, that's really the vision over the next five years. You know, um, to the audience, my entire focus as a human is on how to how to save humanity from itself and how to improve the situation and how to foster what I'll call real human progress. And I've come to believe, and Ryan and I have talked about this multiple times, I've come to believe that the critical capacity to ensure human progress, real, meaningful, holistic human progress is our what I call our human development system, aka the formal education system and then the informal system of what happens at home and in the community. And what I think, what we're realizing is parts of the world are getting this. There are countries yeah. around the world that are understanding that they need to first redefine what constitutes national human progress. Like what does UAE progress look like? And how do you define that in a way that, that, that helps every citizen move forward? And then underneath that, how do you change the education system to, to enable that outcome, if that's like the ultimate outcome? And that's really what so moved me when I first met you and heard about what you're trying to do is it's not just a, a better way to teach our kids. It's actually a way to move a country and ultimately a planet yeah. towards a better definition of human progress, a definition that is beyond GDP, beyond rising, you know, getting people out of poverty and to a place of whole person, whole earth, whole society development. And I, you know, again, I'm just thrilled to be, to be part of this journey that you've, you've started and thank you, you know, as a human, I am that, <laughs> no, you know, yeah. we yeah. can't, we can't solve the problem without people like you trying to to do what you're doing. And, and I think the, sh the traction that you've gotten in such a short amount of time shows that there are a lot of people out there that are, that are looking for a different yeah, pathway yeah. for their child, you know? 
Absolutely. No, I appreciate that. And likewise, I, I, it's nothing that anyone can do alone. Like a, a mission of this, <laughs> of this size really requires a whole collective intelligence of individuals like yourself to really kind of pave the way forward. And I wanted to say, I really appreciate the term that you use there, human development system. One of the things we say is we often try to argue for changing the taxonomy of learning, moving away from using words like courses and subjects and tests and exams and finding new alternatives that make more sense in terms of the language of education, language of learning. And perhaps that's one transition we need to make is moving away from education as a term into human development system, because the way then you're framing a whole different challenge and a whole different objective for the system. Um, and yeah, you're spot on. We really see education as the most powerful tool to contribute to civilization level change as, as right. Mark Prensky likes to describe it. So yeah. that's ultimately the mission. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited that and humbled that you're joining us on, on this journey. You need to stop saying that. <laughs> You need to stop saying that. <laughs> okay, so I'll stop when you stop. I'm, if I'm an interested student or interested parent or interested government, yeah. how do what do I do? What do I how do yeah. I touch with you? What's what's what do I do? Yeah, there's a couple of options. So we do have a registration uh, form on our website. So if you just go on softhumanity.com, that's sofhumanity.com, you can register your interest. It takes less than a minute. And if you do that, it's just you telling us, hey, I'm really interested in the, any of these programs. I'd like to stay in the loop. Um, beyond that, if you're a school, a government, there's a contact form, there's you know our emails on there. So just contact us and I'm happy to discuss it and explore what the possibilities are there. That's great. Well, again, thank yeah. you, not just for being on the show, but for being you and for doing what you were trying to do. Actually, not trying to do, what you are already doing. We, they're learners, <laughs> they're, they're students starting next week, which is just so exciting. And I'm, again, thrilled to be part of it. Thank oh, thank you. you so much. Appreciate the platform as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.